Hi, this is Steve Poor, and you're listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. It was a particular treat for me to sit down recently with Alma Assay, Senior Director of Practice Innovation and Client Value at Kroll & Mooring. Alma's interest in innovation began while she was a litigator at Gibson, Dunn & Crutcher, using technology to improve efficiency for the firm's clients. Without any experience in the technology industry or as an entrepreneur, she then founded Allegory, a cloud-based litigation management platform that delivers services and insights across the entire litigation spectrum. The story of her allegory journey is a fascinating one. It's one of challenge, successes, and enormous perseverance, and I found it intriguing. The story continued in 2017 when Integrion bought the company, making Alma the first female founder to have a legal technology business acquired. At Kroll & Mooring, Alma has built the firm's innovation department, where she and her team address technology and legal operations needs. In today's discussion, Alma talks to us about the lessons she learned in starting a company, the advice she shares with women entrepreneurs, and the impact her traveling experience have had on her professional life. She's a true pioneer, and it was a fascinating conversation. I hope you enjoy it, and thanks for listening. Hi, Alma. How are you? Thanks for joining us today. I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I appreciate it. I look forward to our conversation. We've actually met once before in New York at a conference when we were on a panel together. Yes. For the life of me, I can't remember exactly when or what the panel was. I remember the room. I, I can't remember the topic or venue either, but I distinctly remember sitting on the panel with you and the room. <laughs> yeah, you know what? That's weird because I can remember you in the room as well. And I, for the life of me, I can't remember the substance of the panel. <laughs> Oh, well, probably something having to do with legal innovation, right? I would think so. And I'm sure it was brilliant for any for anybody who may have been out there thinking, yeah, I heard it. it uh, we have to say it was brilliant. Of course. So let's talk a little bit about your journey. First off, what made you want to be a lawyer? Why law school? I didn't. I, I wanted to be an astrobiologist and study life on other planets. So I went to Penn State because it was one of a handful of schools at the time that was part of the Astrobiology Institute. And what I found out is that to do astrobiology, I had to major in astrophysics and I hated physics. So on the last day before you could change your courses, my first year, I had to decide what I wanted to do instead. And my uncle was a lawyer and he loved it. And I had grown up without much money and he was very financially secure and that was very appealing. And I thought, well, maybe I'll try to be a lawyer. And I was told, just don't major in pre-law. So I switched my major to psychology and off I went. Astrobiology sounds awesome, though, I have to admit. I know, right? (laughs) I could have just gotten through the the pesky physics part. Oh, well, physics. Yeah, I would have to admit that would have shuddering thinking of the physics class I took in high school because, dear Lord, I wasn't going to take it in college. That's for sure. Yep. So you go to law school and you come out and you start with Gibson Dunn, which is a fabulous law firm. And what type of litigation did you practice? I did general complex commercial litigation, primarily for big entertainment companies. And again, I think my life is a bit of a series of flukes. Originally, I was going to start on the transactional side and I wanted to do entertainment law, just like my uncle. And they didn't really have a strong entertainment practice at the time in New York. And between the time when I summered and when I started, Warren Snyder came over and he had a huge entertainment practice on the litigation side. And so that's how I ended up being a litigator. 
It is interesting how sometimes serendipity plays a role in people's lives and careers, isn't it? So much. It's really, really interesting. And I, I write a series on women of legal tech for Legal Tech News. And one of my questions is, what was a bit of serendipity that led you to where you are today? Because I just find those moments fascinating. And certainly for myself, and I'm sure we'll get to it in a bit, it was much, much later in my career before I ever made what I would consider to be a truly informed decision about what I was going to do next. You're not alone in that. It's interesting. We've had a number of guests on the on the podcast that have had sort of a similar theme of their story, whether they go to get free pizza in law school and wind up becoming a director of innovation somewhere or yeah. or whatever it may be. It's, it's interesting. So you go back to Gibson Dunn and suddenly there's an entertainment practice. So you become an entertainment lawyer. Exactly. You left that to found Allegory, uh, which was a litigation management software platform. What, what did you learn from practicing litigation that led you to believe there was a better way? Tell us a little bit about that experience and how it informed your next stage. Yeah. So I loved practicing at a big law firm. I'm not one of these people who ran away screaming or, you know, I, I think when I joined a law firm, having heard all the horror stories, I could never imagine myself, you know, staying long enough to become partner. And yet I found myself much later on in my late associate years and thinking about the path toward partnership and totally could have imagined going in that direction. I loved it. Yeah. You were Gibson Dunn for seven years. That's a long run. Yeah. And had a fantastic time, really great, motivated people. What really dragged us down was just staying on top of all the minutia in a litigation. And, you know, I, I think about e-discovery as something entirely separate and all sorts of processes and technologies around that. But we were making big advancements in our team just by using Excel in novel ways and pulling in key parts of documents and testimony to try to be hyper-organized about where everything was and how all the different pieces tied together. And somehow just using Excel made our team technologically advanced. And that was sort of the wake-up call for me. And over the years, we got better and better at it. And I was asked to teach other teams how to leverage the processes and tools that we were using. And I just thought, you know, the typical thought, why doesn't this exist? There has to be a better way. So I just kind of fell into this idea of what could we build that other people could use. But it was really focusing on the facts that led me there. I think when you're in law school, everybody thinks that being a litigator is about legal research and the law, but so much of it was really more about being a private investigator and being able to tie together all the various bits of information from all the various sources. And that's the part that I found really fascinating was digging in and mastering the facts. And that's kind of what led me to founding Allegory. That's what makes a good litigator, having a fascination of the facts and how they fit together and being able to tell the story, no question about it. Yeah. So you'd never founded a company before. You didn't have any experience in tech or tech companies. And if I recall correctly, back in 2012, which is when I think you left the Stump Farm Allegory, this is sort of before legal tech was really a thing. So it's quite a leap into the unknown, right? I had no idea what I was getting myself into. <laughs> None. <laughs> what was it that gave you the confidence to do it? I find that move so incredibly brave and, and fascinating. Thank you for that. For the first time in my life, I felt financially secure, which to me was a huge thing. I also felt, I, I don't know what the term would be, but socially secure. Like I was surrounded by people. I knew if everything fell through the cracks, I'd have couches to sleep on and you know people who would support me. And, and I, 
also knew that I could always go back to Gibson. And it's pretty amazing to have that as your quote unquote fallback plan. Yeah, that's an awesome fallback plan. No question about it. Yeah. And the partners were incredibly supportive. And when I told them what I was doing, you know, they said as much. And I just thought, you know, as I spoke with people about the path toward partnership and knowing that you had to put in those last two years. So, you know, I would always have to put in those last two years leading up to a partnership decision. I just thought if I'm ever going to try anything else, it should be now. I can always come back and do those two years. I also had skipped a grade of high school and a year of college. So I was very young and just thought, you know, I could go do something else now, take a break (laughs) from the law firm, you know, learn some new things, and then I can always come back and still be right on track. And so that's, that's kind of what caused me to take the jump. But again, it was not an informed decision. I didn't do the research I should have done into entrepreneurship and legal innovation before making the jump. I kind of learned it all as I went along. And as you noted, there wasn't the community back then that there was now. So it really was just kind of making my own way and figuring it out and learning a lot of lessons the hard way. Let's talk a little bit about some of the lessons you learned as you look back on it. What was easier and what was harder than you had anticipated? Everything was harder than I anticipated. (laughs) I thought that might be the answer to the question. Like, There's just a flurry of points floating through my brain right now. Um, Everything was harder. So let me think about what was easier than I anticipated. I think that came later. One thing that they don't really teach you in law school, certainly, and even as a young lawyer, except maybe a seminar here or there, is the power of networking. You know, they say you need to learn to do business development, but they don't really frame it in terms of networking and that there is an art to doing it that's really not that hard if you put yourself out there and you show up. So I think in the end, what was way easier for me than I thought was building a network and making those connections. And that's really what helped me get to each next stage was meeting new people. And as as an introvert by nature, none of that came easy to me and it seemed very daunting. So in the end, you know, people would say, oh, you're so outgoing and do all this public speaking. And that all was very crazy to me to hear thinking back a few years to how impossible all of that seemed. Did your litigation experience help with that? Because I know litigators have to be sort of out there as well. But that was the part I was most terrified about. I I was happy to work with a partner like Oren, who was always front and center and was all extroversion. And I could kind of be behind the scenes backing him up. And I did make some oral arguments and I did do some things in court, but that was not my biggest strength. And then in terms of things being harder for entrepreneurship, it's just everything. You do everything and you figure it out as you go along. And so it's all new and nothing that I had training in. But I would say that the very hardest part was how it affects your relationships. Like I had friends who were investors and that sounds like an amazing thing. But suddenly when things aren't going well, you don't feel like you can run tell the people who most believe in you because now their money is tied up in it. They have a more formal investor relationship. And then, you know, when you need help from people and it means the world to you, it can make or break your next step. But they've got other more important things going on in their life. You know, it can put a strain on those relationships when you most need them. And so I think the unexpected impact on personal relationships was probably the hardest thing because it just was so unexpected and affects you in a different way than all the other things that you can sort of get your way around. Right. That makes complete sense. You know, I, I've, I've read some of the things you've, you've talked about and, and written about in terms of this particular journey. And I know 
as with any sort of startup, there's high moments, but there's an awful lot of low moments as well. As you look back on some of the low moments, what carried you through them? You, you, you clearly had a clear belief in the power of the solution set you were offering to the market and you were developing and a conviction that what you're doing was done well. But there had to be moments when the challenge of a startup must seem very daunting. How do you work your way through those moments? Reminding myself that it would get better and that I would look back on those moments and be able to reflect on how far I had come, whether or not it succeeded. But just knowing that those moments pass and that I really wanted to hold on to and remember those moments. And I remember consciously thinking that at the time because I wanted to be able to remember and be able to compare back against them later, whatever happened next, to be able to remind myself as the years went by that when you have those moments, it really does get better if you just keep going. And the other part for me was, honestly, I, I let those little moments happen. I indulged in them and I thought, what is the worst case scenario here? And the idea that the worst case scenario was that I ended up having to go back to being a lawyer and you know this thing didn't succeed, but I still had a whole career ahead of me. It just kind of brought me back to realize that everything was going to be fine. And the hardest part of all of it would really have been disappointing the investors. And I, I think that that's in the moments when I was ready to just throw up my hands, that's what really kept me going is, again, a lot of these investors were friends and family, and I didn't want to disappoint them when they had put money into what we were doing. Do you look back on those moments now and draw the inspiration from them that you thought at the time you would? A thousand percent. Awesome. And it was progressive. I would have a low moment and then six months later, I'd be in a better place than I'd been the six months before. And a year later, that comparison would help carry me through the next one. So very much so. I feel I feel really happy to be where I am in my life and my career right now that I don't have to reflect on that too often. But yes, those comparisons helped so much at the time. That's great. You're bringing out a solution set that was certainly out there and had functionality that was unique in the marketplace. How did you deal with market? Was the market ready for the product? And if so, how did you, how do you deal with market resistance? Because I know that for a lot of legal tech companies, the actual sale of the product is one of the most difficult. It's not, it's not an easy sales cycle. I'll leave it at that. Yeah. The market was not ready. We were too early in retrospect. I wish, I mean, I don't really wish to change anything because it all worked out for the best. Right. You're in a great place now and that's part of the journey. Exactly. But reflecting back, the market definitely wasn't ready. It wasn't, we were a bit early. I think now solutions like what we built with Allegory are making a lot more traction. Although in the legal industry, nothing nothing moves particularly quickly. So even still, it's taking some time to build up. I mean, if you think about how long e-discovery took to become as ubiquitous as it is, and even still, there are some challenges for some firms. So yeah, the market wasn't ready, but we did make some early sales. And I actually would disagree with the idea that the sale is the hardest part. Sales is incredibly difficult. But what I learned the hard way is the sale is almost the easy part. What's hard is then making sure that people use it and it becomes sticky because we had some eye-opening moments early on where we would make the sale 
And again, you know, I was very naive and hadn't properly educated myself on all of this at the time, but we would make the sale and think, okay, we sold them the technology. Amazing. They're going to go off. They're going to use it. They're going to see the value and did not appreciate the change management journey at all. And so a year later, we'd find out, oh, they're not going to renew. And that's almost worse than never having made the sale in the first place. Because now when you go to raise money and whatnot, it's it's not we're working on getting our first clients. It's we had clients, they tried it, they decided not to keep going. And when I would look back, it always was because we didn't engage in that adoption journey with them. And so we got better at that over time, but it, it took some hard truths up front. And really that to me is the hardest part of innovation and having a legal tech company. It's okay, how do I actually get people, lawyers? to use this and make it sticky. Well, that's always one of the biggest challenges, isn't it? The adoption and getting people to change behaviors. You know, we, we tend to forget that change management program. Do you draw on those lessons in your current role with Kroll? Yeah, it's actually in large part why I wanted to come back to the law firm side and do what I'm doing now. And I feel very fortunate that I feel like I get to do exactly what I wanted to be doing at this stage in my career. But on the outside, it was just so hard. No matter, even after Allegory, I took broader roles in illegal innovation. I made sure that I was separated from any sales responsibilities. I didn't want anything hanging over my head tied to money. I wanted the freedom to build relationships and genuinely help people and try to get people to bring on innovation more. And it was just too hard from the outside to kind of break down those barriers within the firms. And so, I wanted to come to the firm side and have the opportunity to work with lawyers and build the kind of trust that I think you need to really get lawyers to change and to use, whether it's an innovative process or innovative technology, to use innovation and adopt it into their practice. And I just think that is, as I've said a few times now, incredibly difficult for the outside and really drove my decision to be where I am now. I want to talk a little bit about what you do as a director of practice innovation and client value here in a second, but let's stick for a moment on sort of the external roles. You're clearly one of the models people look to in terms of successful women entrepreneurs in particular. And so I, I know that you advise other, particularly women, who want to take a similar path. What advice do you give them? What direction do you provide for them? Especially when it comes to women transitioning from the law firm world, the first piece of advice I give is that it's very different in the business world. And that was a shock to me. It's different in so many ways that you're not prepared for. But on the being a woman front, you know, when I worked at Gibson, we would have women's lunches and this programming directed at supporting women. But to be honest, I never really felt like I was disadvantaged there. You know, even if I was the only woman in a room full of men, I felt like I had credibility. I was a lawyer. I had respect. I didn't feel diminished because I was a woman. That all changed when I went into the startup world and worked in Silicon Valley and all of that. And so the first piece of advice I give is just to know that and to know that it's going to happen and be prepared for it. I think even in legal tech, it's much less so than in other startup areas, which I'm grateful for. But then it's really telling women, don't be afraid to speak up. Don't be afraid to reach out. Don't be afraid to know your worth. 
And I think, you know, the imposter syndrome is absolutely true. And it affects everyone at times. But I think women, for sure, I I hear women say all the time, oh, I'm not qualified or, you know, I I invite someone to a panel and, oh, that's not really my area of expertise. And I would be very blunt and point out people on other panels where it wasn't their area of expertise. (laughs) (laughs) I've heard many people talk about stuff they don't know anything about. Exactly. And I'm like, if you don't know it and you want to be out there and there's an opportunity, learn it. I mean, you can learn enough. I mean, this this really isn't astrophysics and rocket science. You can learn enough about most topics to speak on a panel. <laughs> right. You just need to know more than the audience knows. That's all you need to do. Exactly. So I, I, I'm really all about people getting out there. I also am very blunt with people, especially women, you know, for example, there was one woman I was chatting with and she says, sorry, all the time. And I kept telling her, stop saying, sorry, (laughs) you haven't done anything wrong. There's nothing to be sorry for. And just trying to call out those things when I see them and how they come across, because I want to be blunt about how things are coming across and not be one more person who just lets women go out into the world and not fully embrace their confidence and not recognize the small ways in which they can project themselves more confidently. And I think that's probably the thing I tried to do the most is just be really, really candid and blunt with the women that I speak with about everything. That's awesome. It's a generation that's fortunate to have you there. I I suspect you. you wish that you had had somebody similar to talk to when you started your journey. For sure. So let's talk a little bit about your role as Senior Director of Practice Innovation and Client Value. What is that role and what what do you do in that role at the firm? Sure. I do a whole lot of things. Uh, so to start, I when I started in June of last year, I came on in this role. There wasn't yet a practice innovation department. There had been someone in my role and the firm had been doing innovative things, obviously. But the firm gave me the freedom to build out an innovation department. So already, just a little over a year later, we're a team of five. And then we work very closely with others across the firm. So I guess, first of all, I have built out this department and been really careful about who we hire and make sure that we're filling all the right roles to really accelerate innovation here. And then identifying where the pain points are, and then building on my expertise to figure out, okay, how can we solve these? And it's not always technology. Sometimes it's implementing new processes. Sometimes it's truly as simple as actually listening and answering the question. Shocking, isn't it? Oh, it is. It just blows my mind. And so I'd say over the last year, we've had like five huge projects going on with lots of moving pieces. And then we've had about 100. We recently put together our report for the year and we've had about 100 smaller projects of various scales that we have worked on across the firm. And those are one-off projects or systemic challenges that we're trying to solve. And then on top of all of that, I try to be a good point of contact for legal ops folks on the client side. And again, I think this is where listening and answering the question becomes incredibly valuable because sometimes messages are getting lost in translation between the legal ops folks talking to their legal department attorneys who then talk to the attorneys at the law firm who then are trying to get answers to questions that are on the administrative side. 
And so we've been trying to cut through that. And I've been meeting with legal ops folks on the client side to really hear what they need from us from a partnership perspective and come up with either creative ways that we can deliver that or just banging down doors until I get the answer that they need. And that's, you know, I think sometimes law firms can be very hierarchical and you don't want to rock the boat. And I'm not, I'm not really scared to do any of that. So I will keep going until I find the answer that we need to get. And then also just identifying ways that we can add value to the partnership, sharing what we're doing around innovation with clients, seeing how it aligns with their challenges and their innovation initiatives. Um, we found some interesting opportunities to collaborate lately where you know they're working on a certain project having to do with data. Well, it turns out that we're also working on that internally. So let's get our data people together. Just even if we're not going to work together on that project, we have two really smart people who are thinking about data things in the legal industry. Let's put them in a room together and see if they have any ideas to share that might be valuable on either side. So figuring out different ways to collaborate with our clients outside of the outstanding legal work that the firm is providing. So sort of that sort of raises two questions. In terms of change drivers, I'm curious as to, you talk about the legal ops profession, which no surprise my view is that the growth of that profession has been one of the more important change drivers in the industry. I'm curious as to your thoughts on that. And the second one is the role of data in driving change within a law firm. The last point you made, good data analytics, good data, I think can drive a lot of change as well. Have you found that to be the case? Absolutely. On both of those. I really do think legal ops folks are change drivers within their organizations and within the industry as a whole. I remember my first trip to Clock a few years ago and feeling like my mind was blown. It's an unbelievable experience, isn't it? Yeah, and I and I don't mean, you know, everybody at the Bellagio, uh, but no. <laughs> just the presentations and learning, the opportunity to really learn what clients are doing and seeing the acceleration in what legal departments have been able to do through collaborating with other legal departments and sharing what they're doing. Because I think the way that it used to be is, you know, one client might be paying more attention to their law firm relationships and trying creative strategies, but it was just that one client. And now all the clients are talking. The legal department members are talking with one another. They're sharing ideas. They're really accelerating the innovation on on their side and how they're leveraging law firms. And I, I think one of the most valuable things that lawyers at law firms can do is appreciate the value of legal ops folks and and appreciate that they're on that side at all. Because sometimes lawyers don't even realize that there's a legal ops person kind of whispering in the ear of their general counsel contact. And the legal ops folks are so powerful. If they see that a law firm just isn't abiding by any of the outside counsel guidelines and they're making the legal ops folks' lives harder, then that law firm might get a lot less work and they might not ever even know why. So I think absolutely the legal ops folks are driving a lot of change more than I think law firms sometimes realize. And then on the data side, there's just so much change. We are doing a huge data analytics project right now that starts kind of from the ground up and taking a fresh look at how we collect certain data. And what's been really interesting to me is not so much the fancy modern approach we're taking to holding our data and building out new models and the reporting, but actually how much process and people have gone into these projects to make sure that we have great data in the first place because law firms are full of policies about everything. And sometimes these policies conflict head on with 
how you collect and use certain data. And so we've had to push back a bit in places and say, you know, yes, this policy sounds good in theory. You have all these different if-thens for calculating this. and But in practice, when you go to give people straight answers about, am I on track for my hours? What is the diversity in this practice group? It suddenly becomes very difficult to work with that kind of data. And so we've taken some of these conversations back to the roots and said, let's revisit the policies that underlie all of this and try to balance the efficiency of the people and the reports we're creating on the other side with the purpose of the policies in the first place. That's fantastic. Uh, yeah, I, I found the same. I'm not shocked on the policy question. Lawyers are great at coming up with policies that make intellectual sense, but when you go to apply them, they tend to get in their own way sometimes. No question about it. Excellently put. <laughs> <laughs> last, uh, last question. I know you're an avid traveler. I assume you're back traveling now as the pandemic has eased up a little bit. What role does travel and the experiences you you gain from that travel play in your professional life, if any? So much. Um, and I am I'm not quite back to traveling the way I want to be. Uh, we are still very, very COVID conscious over here, especially with a two-year-old, which is crazy. I was pregnant when the pandemic hit and it just blows my mind that I'm sitting here still concerned and my daughter's more than two. It's shocking, isn't it? It really is. But before COVID and having my two-year-old, I had been to all seven continents and somewhere between 40 to 50 countries. And I just, I really prioritized traveling and was lucky to work at a firm that was very open-minded, and this would be Gibson back in the day, about as long as you're getting your hours done and you're showing up when you should show up, we're not checking in on your office to make sure you're sitting in your desk all day. And so from the beginning of my career, I've had this mindset that so many more people have now of you really can work from anywhere as long as you're responsible about it. And so that enabled me, even though I've been very busy in my career, to travel and experience different places a ton. And when I went to Antarctica, it gave me a point of reference and sort of how much more there is out there and how much beauty is out there. And that has helped me in moments, in those low moments as well. I remember standing on a subway platform in Brooklyn on a really, really terrible day and just catching a breeze and just being reminded kind of of the earth and that, you know, we're all just temporary figures here. And, you know, thinking back to my time in Antarctica and how big and beautiful everything was, I also loved being in South Africa and getting immersed in the culture there and, you know, recognizing how privileged we all are. You know, there are people there who these kids walk two hours to school every day, not knowing if there's going to be water along the way. And it really hit home when I came back to New York and thought about all the people who complain if they don't have hot water in their shower for a day. And those people that I met in South Africa were some of the happiest people I've ever met in my life. And again, it's just that context, especially in the low moments of, but, but also in the joyful moments and extra appreciating them of how much privilege we all have and just how much we have. And, you know, that sometimes less is more and taking a step back and remembering to find the joy and have moments where you're not trying to stay on top of everything. And you do just kind of set things to the side, you know, even if there's more to get done and remember what's important. And those lessons, you know, have helped me so much in my career and 
also now balancing being a mom with having a career. So I, I just, I tell everyone, I wish everybody would travel more. I think you're going to learn so much. And, and when people tell me, oh, but I don't have someone to travel with, I tell them travel alone. I traveled alone a ton and I, I met people along the way. I learned a lot about myself. I gained a lot of confidence uh, in figuring things out and also dealing with moments when you're scared and you don't know where you are and you don't know what to do next and something's gone terribly wrong. Those also are really, really powerful lessons uh, when you bring them back to your everyday life. Absolutely. It sounds fabulous. I know we're out of time. Oh my, I can't tell you how much I appreciate the conversation. I could keep this going uh, forever, but I, I want to be respectful of your time and I, I really appreciate your conversation. Thank you so much for having me. It's really been a pleasure to chat with you and I appreciate you inviting me to join you here today. Thanks for listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Be sure to visit thepioneerpodcast.com for show notes and more episodes. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform.